Howdy, hey, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is with Cambry Baker. This is one of two episodes with her. She's an environmental psychologist. I went up to Michigan to see her and to do this interview. So right now we're sitting in her yard. Her chocolate lab fan is running back and forth. So if you hear someone heavy breathing, that's not somebody standing behind the microphone. That's her dog uh, trying to get us to play fetch with him. And we do play with him a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But enjoy the podcast. You have a pretty intense background with climate resilience in relation to kids in um, a few countries. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, only two countries, but... A couple of countries. A couple of countries, <laughs> that's fair. I, so I didn't really get into climate resilience until I found myself in Australia. Um, it kind of found me, I think, a bit. I was there studying abroad um, my junior year of college and I don't know what made me go to Australia. I was actually really um, really conflicted about that choice because I wanted to go to a less developed place to have a little bit more of a change in perspective. But I went there because there was a program there studying sustainability and just like how they framed talking about sustainability was super solution oriented. Like they kind of said like right off the bat, like we're not going to talk about all of the problems our world has. We're only concerned here with the solutions. And if that's how you want to think about the world right now, like this is the right program for you. And so I ended up in Australia in 2019 and traveled all around the country there learning from different people in different parts um, of the area and so like we would travel to Tasmania to learn about um, like nonviolent protesting because there's a lot of forest battles that went on there between logging companies and conservationists and so we learned in this really hands-on way and part of our semester was learning about something called eco-psychology, which is kind of just like a branch of psychology focused on the environment. But you might have heard of environmental psychology before, and this is a little bit of a step further than that um, because it's focused more on like that human nature connection and the idea that for us to like heal ourselves and for us to be happy and for the world to... Um, or for society in general to be thriving, like the natural world also has to be doing those things. The natural world has to be healthy and we're like a reflection of each other because we're not separate, right? And so there was this woman, Ashana, who was teaching me all of those things and she's like a total forest goddess and I was so like captured by how she talked about humans and nature and I wanted to know more from her and I knew that she was like this mentor that I needed in my life. And so I went up to her one day after our class and we have this independent project that we had to complete as part of our study abroad semester. And it was this month long project that you could do anything you wanted to do with. 
Um, you can conduct research or you could go work for a nonprofit, really anything you could think of. And I knew that I wanted to work with her during my project. And she was telling me a little bit about this nonprofit that she created called Joyality that was trying, was working with people, mostly like young adults, people my age and older, to help them connect more to the natural world, connect more to themselves and what their passions were, and to use that to fuel them to take action, to um, just help create change, the kind of change that they wanted to see in the world, whether that's environmental sustainability solutions or social justice in general. Um, but it was kind of like this incubator for people to help move them from feeling really overwhelmed by all of the problems in our world to feeling like they could take steps like realistically and to, f to help them feel empowered to do that so this is all a long way of like getting to the point where I sat down and talked to Ashana about this nonprofit, and I remember telling her like this really speaks to me like I think what you're doing is so important and at the time I myself was feeling really just super disempowered by the world I was in I mean like Australia was on fire when I was there and the government wasn't doing anything about it. They were totally denying it. Um, and it's really easy to feel helpless when that's like the reality that you're in. Um, but she had this different narrative that she was living, you know, like she was living and choosing to believe that like there were these solutions and there were these people working to solve them and they were going to get there. And, like that's the world she was living in. Um, but I wanted in my independent project to work with children um, and not people my age because I've always worked with kids in one way or another my whole entire life and I've always felt like they more than anyone else are so aware of what's going on and feel it like so intensely um, whether they know that consciously or not and so when I was sitting down with her, I said, hey, I think this program is really important and I think we should build it for kids. And her being the amazing forest goddess that she is, said, absolutely, I would love to help you do that. Um, and so that began this really crazy, supposed to be one month long project, but because it was such a big project, I ended up starting early and kind of like just leapt into learning more about the program um, and how they were helping move people from those feelings of denial and hopelessness to feeling really empowered. Um, and so I was working with other educators in this program um, <laughs> and we would meet like every couple days over Zoom to go over curriculum and to ask questions like, what do kids need right now, you know? Like, what are kids feeling the most about climate change? Um, because no one really knew. No one really knew, like, how anxious are kids? How aware are they of climate change in the first place? Um, and we were looking at Australia specifically. And there was kind of this really 
really terrible moment, like mid-project, when we were planning all these resources, um, where the entire community around where I was living and working um, caught on fire. And everyone was breathing in smoke every day. Schools were starting to shut down. Kids were either being cooped up at home, um, trying to not breathe in the smoke, or they were being evacuated to other places with their families. And, you know, at that point, it was like a lot of people in the area became climate refugees. They didn't have a home anymore or a safe place to be. One place would be burning and then the next would be. And you could feel it in the air. Like you could feel that emotion and that anxiety and just despair. I mean, I would, during this project, I would like go home every day, sit outside in the smoke and just like, just feel it and cry. I mean, it was, it was so heavy. Um, and this is all while I'm trying to think about, you know, how do you support kids through climate change because they're feeling this. So we set out to create some workshops um, about building climate resilience in kids, emotional climate resilience. Because when I think about climate resilience, there's like the really practical side, um, you know, like moving, building our cities further away from. <laughs> you okay, buddy? Building our cities further away from oceans, for example, right? Because as sea rises, we want to prepare for that. So that's like a physical change um, to help us be more resilient. But then there's also the psychological resilience that we're going to need because we're going through this really challenging situation and we feel super threatened. And so how do you, you know, like how do you act? How do you keep going on and not just shut down? Because we need to change our behaviors. And so ultimately when we were thinking about how do you support kids, like we wanted to give them tools of psychological resilience. Um, and we also wanted them to feel empowered because kids, I think, more than like any group in our culture, have the least agency. They don't have a lot of say in what goes on in our society. You know, they can't <laughs> um, really advocate as easily. And so how do we get them to feel like they have agency when they're just this seven-year-old who's really scared about the fact that the world might be burning before she's, you know, 80 or something. Um, and so it was kind of just this big experiment. I gathered a bunch of kids together um, in Brunswick Heads, New South Wales in Australia. And how old are these kids? They're eight to 12. Okay. They're eight to 12 years old. There's about 10 of them at this workshop that I put on this is the first workshop that I did and I did it right by the ocean shore in this stretch of um, forest or as they call it in Australia the bush and the parents came like dropped their kids off I asked the parents to sign a waiver release because I wanted to use what we learned from this workshop in my research and then the parents kind of chatted with me for a little bit I was able to learn that probably 60% of the kids that were there had been evacuated by these fires and like they were there at this workshop in all of this craziness 
and that like really hit me because it showed how much these parents were struggling to provide that support for their kids like they were willing to in all of the craziness and on settled like whatever of being in a wildfire they're like okay I'm gonna drive my kid to this workshop so that I can hopefully help them and I was super intimidated I was like myself feeling so unprepared to deal with climate change that there was a lot of questions of like who am I to help these kids but I think that's where we're all at no one really knows the right way to live through climate change and especially not these kids so I tried to think of this workshop less as a giving kids some more support because I didn't think we were there yet but more of just like learning from them what they were struggling with and try to figure out from there what might be helpful um one of the activities that we did with the kids with the students was go out onto the beach and I drew this huge circle and I cut it into it all of these slices of pie in the sand with my feet and they each got a slice of pie and I asked them to draw a map in the sand. And so in their map, it was super open-ended, but I asked them to draw their home and the world around it um, and anything they thought of. It could be people, places, things, ideas, stuff they liked, stuff they didn't like, whatever. And I asked them after they had finished drawing to share about it with each other, not to me, but to each other and so the kids started drawing in the sand and I was just wandering around asking a couple questions but just kind of letting them share what they wanted to and I remember this one girl built her house in the sand and she built a big moat around it and I asked her I was like why why are you building a moat that's a really creative um idea like do you have a moat at your house you know She's like, no, I don't have a moat at my house, but I think it'd be a good idea. You know, we can fill it with water, and then when the fires come, they won't be able to reach us. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, some heavy stuff to be thinking about at nine years old. Um, and so they shared these things that were really heavy to each other. Um, and then afterwards, I asked them, I said, okay... Do you ever talk about these things with anyone in your lives? And some of them said, yeah, sometimes my parents. And others said, no, we don't talk about these things, you know, like we're never asked. And then I asked them if they liked talking about it with their friends here. And it's really hard to get kids to talk about their feelings, right? Um, that's some of the tools that they're not fully formed. <laughs> but... A couple of them were really brave and were said, like, yeah, like, I would maybe do this again. And so that to me felt like a little bit of a place to start. Um, just connecting kids with other kids who are feeling the same thing. Um, and so I was feeling kind of hopeful about the rest of the day of that workshop. And we hiked back into the woods. I had a couple other activities planned. Um, but we were breaking for lunch and all of a sudden along the water smoke started to pile in and my co-leader and I had to quickly like pull the kids away from their lunches, get them on their feet 
and like get out of the bush because there was smoke piling in and we had no idea where it was coming from. It was much denser than just the smoke that had been around in the air before. And so clearly there had been another fire that started somewhere, but we had no idea where. And so it was like this super like weird moment where we're talking about climate change and then we're like trying to run away from this fire with these kids who are already, most of them evacuated, you know? Um, but I think even for kids that climate change isn't that real for them, they hear enough about it in the world nowadays that they, they're aware that it's going on. They might not know a ton of information about it, but the majority of them, the research shows, are aware of climate change and believe that it's real. Um, and so we know that. And so now it's a question of how are you, we talking about it with them? Because as parents and as teachers, um, friends, adults, any type of relationship you have to children, how we talk about it to them frames how they think about it. And so if they're only getting their information from the media, which is arguably really doom and gloomy, <laughs> then how they're going to think about climate change is, oh my God, the world's going to end. And so after this workshop experience, I conducted more research. Um, I surveyed parents and teachers and children, and I asked questions like that, you know, like, um, when I think about climate change, I think about blank. And I would get responses like, the world's going to end, you know, I'm not going to live until 50, things like that. So I think that showed that the current narrative is doom and gloom. And when I talked to parents and teachers, they, they reflected that. They said one of their biggest challenges when talking with kids is like worrying about not, not making things worse, like not hurting their child more by talking about it because they themselves were so anxious about climate change that they thought their kids would just take that on. And so when I think about climate resilience in children, building climate resilience in kids really starts with helping parents and teachers, like their most direct form, points of contact, um, be able to come to this narrative of there is hope and there are solutions um, and teaching them to talk about climate change with their kids by focusing on the solutions that are happening. So <laughs> I could keep going forever about this. You've brought up a few times now a solutions-based focused rather than a problems-based focused to eventually reach a solution. Are there any challenges that you can foresee in switching the common approach to a solutions-based one rather than problems-based? Because that's kind of where education has been since formalized education, right? You get the problem, then you find the solution. But I think solutions-based focus kind of acknowledges the presence of a problem first. So I'm wondering if you can discuss a little bit about the differences between those two approaches and what kind of challenges you can foresee coming with solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing that we need to be thinking about right now. Um, to differentiate them to begin with, problems-based solution or problems-based focus, I would think of as, you know, you're talking about the threats that climate change is going to bring to us. So maybe you're 
teaching about sea level rise or you're teaching about global warming um, you're trying to educate kids on why these things are happening um, and why we need to worry about them and so it's really good to have that background information um, because you know understanding the concepts and the science behind it can be really helpful in thinking about the solutions so I'm not necessarily advocating that we only focus on the solutions but the problem that lies in just teaching about the problems as we've covered a little bit is that you know you're just kind of leaving students feeling like our world is deteriorating and not quite giving them the support or guiding them to move from what these problems are to the solutions that we already know of and to solutions that we might be able to create and so solutions-based approach you can acknowledge all of the problems that are there. We're not trying to create a false sense of reality. Like kids are aware of the problems and we can teach about the science behind them, but it should be taught in conjunction with solutions that people on the ground, preferably in their own community or state are taking. So an example of that might be talking about how, you know, one of the solutions we have for reducing carbon emissions is sequestering more carbon in our soil. So a solutions-based approach would take the kids to a garden or start a small garden in their backyard of their school or community. And you would talk about maybe some of the problems of carbon emissions as you're actively sequestering carbon. Um, and so because it's hands-on, because it's focused on the future and what you are working towards, the kids then can kind of start to um, build and imagine this future that might look better. So I think one of the problems with that in our traditional school system is that it takes a lot more intention because as you said, we are so good at focusing on what's wrong. Um, that that's asking a lot of teachers themselves who build curriculum um, to be able to put extra thought into teaching solutions-based because solutions-based is going to require a little bit more effort connecting with members of the community who are taking actions or you know building this long-term project that your students can work on throughout the school year um, that makes them feel really empowered because they're contributing they're helping the problem those things just take more time. And that's a really short thing to come by in school systems with all of the um, all of the standards that teachers have to meet, all of the like testing that they have to teach to. So um, as much as I wanna say, I'm really hopeful that like teachers on their own could just work that through and figure it out. I really don't, I don't see being able to incorporate a more solutions-based approach on like a systematic level very possible unless we are changing the standards that teachers are supposed to teach to because otherwise all of the burden is placed on teachers themselves who have so many constraints already that I think in the long term they might be able to sustain that extra intention for a short while but I could see them being burnt out with that if they didn't also have support from the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not a solution that I've come up with yet. I mean, that's 
like the problem of our time, right? It's like changing the education system on that wide of a scale is a huge thing that hasn't happened since, you know, a long time. Yeah, I think that's, it's very interesting because that's kind of reflective of uh, the current need. You know, our modern public education system is designed to create students that are ready to go into a world of factories where they're ready to start working on assembly lines, work with a schedule that breaks up for a regulated lunch break and where Mm -hmm. shifts are divided in periodic increments and they're doing um, pretty unskilled labor inside those factories, you know. Um, And one other thing I really enjoy about the solutions-based focus is that there's a product other than knowledge. Mm -hmm. The product is inherently acts of service, inherently community-based problem-solving, right? You can't just shove the knowledge in the kids' brains because that's not how that approach works, (laughs) which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. And not only is it like this act of service, but they're building skills that are going to be applicable in this future world. You know, we're going to need to learn how to be more self-sufficient and to think more creatively and to problem solve through like real, real life things, not abstract problems, I guess. And so I think there's definitely that potential there, like partnering, schools partnering with different community members to maybe take some of that burden off of teachers where the students can directly benefit that community member or that nonprofit by working with them. And then in, you know, in return receive that experience um, and the knowledge that that community member has and it can kind of create this reciprocity. Um, and I think that that is what takes so much time, like building those connections throughout the community, knowing about who is in your community and um, that's that's kind of like a huge change from how we're living right now um just really knowing your community yeah at least where i grew up that wasn't the case i don't know about you yeah it seems like uh with the advent of modern technology and, and modern jobs particularly digitally based jobs we're becoming more and more isolated and of course that leads to a whole another separate set of issues with mental illness and physical illness as well but um, I think that this solution that we're discussing right now is very reflective of how society has been excluding the last 150 to 200 years. You know, there's the, the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we should rephrase that. It takes a village to raise a child right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that makes me think of something I was talking about earlier about these kids having not really been asked how they were feeling about climate change Um, like how we live right now is so individualized that everything is kind of we kind of compartmentalize what we're feeling and almost who we are too you know like we separate ourselves from other people in those ways Um, and there's all these boundaries in place that don't allow us to just freely talk about our feelings right that would be seen as super weird Um, (laughs) so yeah, so like I guess I guess the kids they need to they need to feel like their feelings are normal because they are. They're like such a healthy response to this crazy threat. Like feeling scared about climate change and anxious, it means that you're connected to the world. And I feel like that can be a little comforting too. Um and so if the kids can 
hear that from other people who are adults especially that their response is so normal and so healthy um it might not feel so heavy mm-hmm. yeah so i think um i think part of the reason that kids are feeling this doom and gloom is because their parents and grandparents are very reflective you know there's i mean you hear that all the time i walked uphill both ways to my <laughs> school or you know that i used to play in this field when i was a kid now it's a dollar tree um and so i think in a lot of ways the the caretakers and figures of authority and responsibility and and uh the role models for these children are actively mourning right now a world that is gone Mm -hmm. and that is still steadily disappearing and i think it's the fact that it's still going away despite their best efforts um that impacts these children so much um so with that being said I think I would be very interested to hear your opinions and views on how we can present such heavy topics to kids, right? So there, there's these debates on um, at what age kids should learn about death, for example. Uh, it's a very real part of everybody's world. And uh, if we just step back for a second, back to that individualism that we were just discussing, the modern death is very hidden you know it's locked away you Mm -hmm. don't see the body until it's completely covered in makeup stuffed with cotton in a beautiful wooden casket or until it's already ash and if we step back that 150 200 years again death was a very real part of the household even more modern than that for victorians a wake would be held for a week inside the house Mm -hmm. where the body would be in the parlor room and now we're hiding that from ourselves which is damaging, but I think more importantly, we're hiding that from children. So uh, what are your thoughts on presenting death and extremely sensitive topics that most people think could be debilitating to kids? Yeah, um, it's, that's kind of a really big debate in research. Do we talk about climate change with kids? If so, how early? And the short answer is no one knows, <laughs> you know? And the research kind of says a lot of different things. A lot of research will argue that you know, in early childhood, it's much more harmful than good to introduce topics like climate change. Um, I haven't done much much research in death psychology, but a lot of those, a lot of that literature actually overlaps. So it's a good question. Um, In my research, I worked mostly with middle school aged kids. Um, And what I will say is that with middle schoolers, the ones that I uh, interviewed um, they were all already aware of climate change to some extent most of them believed it was real Um, there was only a very small portion that were not sure if it was real or not and I guess what that tells me is if the kids already know about something and they're talking about it I think they're ready to have some conversations about it if they're bringing it up um I think it's, my philosophy is like if the kid asks, they're ready to know the answer. Um, And I think if they didn't ever bring up the conversation, then maybe they're not ready to talk about it yet. I don't think there's can ever be a hard and fast age at which you introduce it, but um, at least in my experience working with children, they become much more aware of these types of things and curious about them kind of towards middle school. 
as their brain is developing and they're starting to think less about just themselves as individuals and more about their place in the world around them. They're trying to figure that out and navigate that, that like totally like huge expansion of perspective. And so I think because we're talking about like, how do we frame climate change positively? That's a really great age to start talking to kids about it because they're only just forming how they think about these things because they're only just really becoming aware of them. Um, and so I'm really interested in working with that age with middle schoolers and also high schoolers talking about them. Do you think that philosophy of if the children are asking about something and they're ready to talk about it can be applied to pretty much any subject like um, economics, sexual health? Do you think if they're asking about it, they're ready to know most of the details? I mean, that's a tricky question, especially nowadays with social media. Kids are getting exposed to ideas so much sooner than they would have, like, more naturally just through conversation. So maybe talking to your three-year-old about sexual health, right? That's a super dramatic example, but who knows? Everyone has iPads nowadays, right? Yeah. Uh, so if they're asking the question, where do babies come from, <laughs> that using your theory, that would promote the idea of you should at least talk about basic reproduction, right? I think, I think if they're asking the question, you shouldn't just brush it off. You should acknowledge what they're asking and respond to it. But you also have to look at it through the lens of like what is age appropriate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the tricky part because we can't like draw these hard lines. I'm like, what do you know at what age? What is appropriate? Um, so I think that's where knowing the child really is important. Um, and parents are like the direct line to talking to kids about these questions, right? Like that's who most kids are going to go to um, or maybe a teacher. So. I think the most important thing is to first just acknowledge it and like acknowledge how they're feeling about it. Because if you're brushing it away or trying to distract them, that tells them that it's not important. So if you're talking about climate change and they ask you about it and you're like, oh, don't worry about it. They're gonna feel very unheard and unsupported and like you aren't doing anything to help this problem that they already see. So. It's kind of one of those use your judgment things, but I think that it is fair to say that if a child asks about it, you should talk about it with them in some way, mm-hmm. as best you know how. Yeah, I really like your, your acknowledgement and the, the consideration of, you know, the age and the maturity of the individual child. Um, you know, just like you wouldn't talk about the, the full-on details of reproduction with most kids, you might not want to slap them with death statistics and, and how parts of the Spanish islands are going to be underwater in 15 years. Um, What do you think is a good entry-level way to talk to a child who's first asking about climate change where this might be their legitimate very first conversation about climate change? Mm -hmm. I think it's totally acceptable to acknowledge reality and be like, yep, you know, climate change is happening right now because you could even be super simple about it. You could just say, you know, because of the way that a lot of people in this world are living right now, we are harming the earth in, um, you know, right now a lot of people are working to change how we live so that we can 
help the earth be really healthy and happy and we can help us be really healthy and happy. It can be that simple. You don't have to go into big details about the science behind it if they're not old enough to understand that. But I think after that just simple acknowledgement of like, okay, that's, that's what climate change is, even if you're not explaining carbon emissions and greenhouse gases, right? <laughs> um, after that, I think you immediately need to switch gears and be like, okay, in our very community or in our home, this is something we can do to live in a more sustainable way. And that's gonna help mother nature. That's gonna help the world around us. Um, that'll be good for the trees in your backyard and the bugs that are, you know, you're squishing under your feet in our, in our grass. And so like grounding it in the child's world, which is usually rather small, um, is really important because if you are, you know, if you're talking to a child about <laughs> polar bears and Antarctica and they're like, oh man, these polar bears. And then you work with them to, I don't know, try to help the polar bears. It's not as empowering for that child because they can't see the effect of their actions. So a more like grounded example would be talking to kids about maybe food waste, for example. And in your own home, teaching them and helping guide them to come up with an idea for how they want to waste less food in your own house every day at every meal um, that's something that they can see and that's always there and that they're, they have agency over. Like they can make that choice like, oh, maybe I'm going to take less for dinner tonight or, you know, maybe, maybe we should plan ahead what we're going to make so we know what to get at the grocery store. Um, and that's something that they can have a little bit more power over with you there supporting them, encouraging them, giving them the tools they need to do that. Um, and they can see the effect of that you could say wow we only threw out the trash once this week or something instead of 10 million times last year <laughs> um <laughs> so yeah i mean just like getting creative with it um it can be hard for people to think of of those small little actions that will get kids hooked on that path of creating changes um, about things that they're really passionate about it can be hard to always like identify those but there's also tons of online groups out there for parents and for teachers who are trying to support each other in supporting their kids, right? It's not something you have to do alone. That was episode one of two with Cambry Baker, who's an environmental psychologist that focuses on uh, climate change resilience, particularly in kids. Thank you so much for joining us, Cambry. If you enjoyed the topics of this conversation, please go check out part two of this, which is coming out right after this episode. And uh, go check out some of the other episodes if you haven't uh, listened to them yet, because they're all pretty similar. And thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.